Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics on CPAC, the campaign edition, day 11 of the federal election race. Today, B.C. and Ontario are the focus of the uh, main party leaders with promises on housing and taxing bank profits, mental health and affordability issues. And the crisis in Afghanistan remains a key factor in the campaign again today with more questions about Canada's response and the looming deadline to spirit Afghans to safety in this country. But first, let's look at the day on the campaign trail. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole campaigned in Brantford, Ontario, where he focused on his party's promise to increase funding for mental health, noting the increase in mental illness during the pandemic. After coming through a pandemic, the Liberals decided a one-time top-up for health care was good enough. It isn't. As Prime Minister, I will double the current federal commitment to the growth of health funding, making an additional $60 billion available for health and mental health over the next 10 years. But O'Toole has promised to leave the spending of additional federal health funding to the provinces. And he did not commit to requiring concrete commitments from the provinces to spend more money on mental health services. We will partner with the provinces, not create confrontation as we've seen with Mr. Trudeau. How you doing? Who's this? Liberal leader Justin Trudeau campaigned again in British Columbia, where there are tight three-way races in this election. At a stop in Surrey, Trudeau met with a young family and repeated his party's promise to make housing more affordable. We'll help you buy your first home sooner. And we'll do this by getting you to a down payment faster with a plan worth tens of thousands of dollars. We'll also launch a new rent-to-own program. At the same time, we'll crack down on predatory speculators competing with families trying to buy their first home. And to help pay for housing investments, Trudeau says a re-elected Liberal government will boost the corporate tax rate by 3% to 18% on earnings over a billion dollars for banks and insurance companies whose profits soared during the pandemic. The Liberals will also look to negotiate a special dividend to be paid by those same banks and insurance companies. Given that our banks have posted extraordinary large profits, have continued to be incredibly successful, including through a pandemic where everyone else had to tighten their belts, we're going to ask them to do a little bit more. Our banks will continue to be strong and profitable, but we will ensure that they're also doing their part so we can support Canadians who sacrificed so much during this pandemic and build back stronger for everyone. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh campaigned in Windsor, Ontario, where he promised an NDP government would cap cell phone and internet rates to help make life more affordable for Canadians. We've looked at uh, the OECD countries around the world and looked at what their average rates are. Ours are far above them. So we want to bring, we want to put a cap in place of what the average cell phone price would be or the average cell phone and internet services would be for the other OECD countries. Canada's right now is far above other similar countries. And Singh sought to frame the ballot question for Canadians as the cost of living, saying only the NDP has the plan to support Canadians. We can't afford another four years of Justin Trudeau, who lets the super rich get away with a free ride, while New Democrats are committed to making sure they pay their fair share and invest in people. That applies to Aaron O'Toole just as well. He voted against our measure 
to tax the ultra-rich. Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchette was in Quebec City with candidates in tight races in that region against Conservatives and Liberals. Blanchette promised his party would continue to press for improvements to employment insurance and sickness benefits. And Green Party leader Anime Paul was in Toronto again today and speaking about the need for better pandemic preparedness. Unfortunately, politics more than once has crept into the decision-making about critical elements of our pandemic response. We should be guided by science. We should be guided by the experts. Politics has no place in those decisions. Especially if that's one the spitter. That's, that's, the, the spitter. that's the photo I don't want caught. <laughs> oh, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> and that's the kind of day it's been. Day 11 of the election campaign. The crisis in Afghanistan also remains a key issue in the campaign, and it became clear today that thousands of people Canada has promised to rescue from Afghanistan will be left behind. The United States is pulling its troops out of Afghanistan by August 31st, and that means Canada and another dozen nations are scrambling to get Afghans and Canadian citizens onto the last planes out of Kabul before those U.S. troops no longer provide security at the airport. Today, federal ministers could not say how many more Canadian flights there will be or how many more people will be rescued in the next few days. There are also suggestions that Canadian forces on the ground in Kabul have been doing less than other countries to go outside the airport and provide safe passage for Afghans trying to get to the airport. A video surfaced today on social media of Afghans apparently with their Canadian visas on their smartphones waiting in a ditch of sewage for hours and being ignored by Canadian soldiers as they tried to get into the airport. And uh, they are completely ignoring our yelling and shouting and nobody is going to take care of us. And we are waiting for the last three hours in this canal and uh, everybody is ignoring our messages, yelling and shouting. And on the campaign trail today, party leaders weighed in on the government's ongoing response to the Afghanistan crisis. Once this, this uh, evacuation phase is done, we're not stopping our work. We're going to continue with the international community to put pressure on the Taliban uh, to ensure that people can leave the country. We will continue to work with neighbors and partners in the region uh, to get more and more people to safety. We've committed uh, to welcoming over 20,000 Afghan refugees to Canada, and we will work very closely on an ongoing fashion to do that. Mr. Trudeau and his government ignored this problem for years, did not take action months ago when nonprofits veterans organizations and Canadians were demanding action, Mr. Trudeau put his political interests ahead of a crisis there. There are allies in Afghanistan that put their lives at risk and their families' lives at risk to support our Canadian forces. We promised to have their backs and now it looks like Canada has failed. And that is something we, we can't allow to happen. So we've got to do everything possible to secure the evacuation of our allies, of those, those folks that supported us on the ground. Dennis Thompson is a retired Canadian Forces Major General who commanded NATO's Task Force Kandahar in Afghanistan in 2008 and 2009. He's with me now. Uh, Dennis Thompson, thanks for taking time to speak with me today, first of all. Let's begin with the timeline for the remaining flights out of Afghanistan. Uh, we heard from federal ministers today, and we didn't get much clarity on uh, what the expectations might be over the next couple of days. Um, how many flights and how much time do you think Canada has uh, before it shuts down that airlift operation in Kabul? 
Well, I think as they try to explain, uh, if the operation ceases on the 31st of August, which is certainly what Mr. Biden is leading towards, if you back that up to give enough time for the U.S. military to withdraw and for their final flights, we're probably looking at 24 to 48 hours worth of fights, flights. Uh, we're certainly aware that access to the airport is now closed. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't Canadians citizens and Afghans who worked with Canadians already on the airfield. Do you have a sense of how many more flights that, I guess what a lot of Canadians want to know is if they can get any idea of how many more people uh, we think we can get out of there in the next couple of days? Well, my understanding is it's based on our people on the ground, the, the, the network that we're managing. Uh, the gate's closed, um, so it's whoever is inside, and I don't have that number. You'd have to check with the government right. for that. Uh, we have an idea of how many of our families are in there, but that's it. Uh, and how many would that be? Well, we would probably have, in the, and we don't have exact figures because it's awfully hard to, to uh, communicate with all of them, but we think we have about a dozen families in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and just to, just to recap, we started this network. It wasn't quite that large, but it has grown to be about 400 families as we've, as we've uh, brought, brought in other groups to help them manage their people. And up to this point, we think we have managed to get out about 70 fa families, and uh, that's you know, 17% of the population we're trying to manage, which is where we stand now. All right, you, you talk about the efforts that you and your group are, are making to try and get uh, these people out. Federal ministers maintained again today that Canada has done everything it possibly could and can to get people out of Afghanistan. Do you believe that's true? Um, I don't think there's any profit in, uh, in critiquing the government right now. We are focused very much on the on getting the other families out these approximately 330 families out and now we have to focus our attention on the land route to the countries at the extremities whether that's uh, pakistan uzbekistan or tajikistan uh, that's where our focus is now we can worry about uh, whether the operation was conducted quickly enough or efficiently mm. enough at some later time we've heard reports and i'm sure you have too of canadian forces uh, uh, not using helicopters or buses to go outside the airport and rescue afghans uh, where they're hiding and and bring them to the airport that way as some other countries have been doing um, what can you tell me about that what do you know about exactly how how often or, or what it is Canadian forces are doing outside of the airport to try and get people to the airport? Again, I don't have any inside baseball on that. What I can tell you is that nobody in our network used a bus. Uh, I would, and there are, to my knowledge, no Canadian forces helicopters available at that airport for obvious reasons. I mean, we've been out of Afghanistan mm -hmm. for seven years, so it wouldn't make sense to do that. Are you satisfied that there's, uh, you know, the Americans have struck a deal with, with the Taliban and, and had ongoing negotiations to be able to move their people uh, to the airport? Um, uh, have, have we had that same kind of relationship uh, in this country? And if not, uh, do you wonder why not? Not to my knowledge. And again, I just reiterate that if you recognize a government, that's completely different from negotiating with uh, a, a government. And so... Uh, I've said from the start that there was going to have to be some negotiation with the Taliban if we were going to use a, a, the more efficient method of bringing, bringing people in on buses or whatever mechanism we wanted to use. Uh, that didn't happen to my knowledge. It certainly didn't happen with the Afghan Canadian, sorry, the Afghans uh, who supported Canadians that are in our network. And, uh, you know, there's many ways to do these sorts of operations. And like I said, we're more, more focused on getting these other families out and we'll worry about uh, how the operation was conducted 
um, sometime in the future. Canadians are, are seeing a video today on social media that appears to show Afghan men waiting for hours in this sewage-filled ditch, uh, waving their visas on their smartphones that they've been approved for passage uh, in front of Canadian special forces at the airport and, and claiming they're being ignored. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I think, first of all, we have to understand what the orders were they were issued because, you know, soldiers follow whatever direction they're given. Um, uh, and obviously, it's not a very good image, and it's one that, uh, that I'm sure they wish they could turn around. Um, but it is what it is. Uh, I don't know how to explain it personally. Uh, what we heard from ministers today to be uh, to provide some context, I gave from the Minister of Defense, the suggestion that, look, as you mentioned, uh, soldiers are given different orders. Some soldiers are there to provide security uh, at the airport, and that's it. And they, they maintain that task. Others are tasked to uh, get people through uh, the airport vetting process and get them get them onto the airport ground. So. Um, would it be important to know that? I mean, if, as you say, if the soldiers were told stay there and provide security, then they're not in a position to help people get into the airport space. Is that one possible explanation? It is one possible explanation. It doesn't explain why you can't uh, chat these guys up. I mean, they all worked with us. They were all clearly uh, Canadian candidates, and, and um, it'd only be civil to, to talk to them or pass them a bottle of water or uh, encourage them, et cetera, but that's not what we see in the video, and, and I personally can't explain it. Could Canadian troops, uh, I, mean, I guess people watching will wonder this, could Canadian troops stay behind in Afghanistan after the U.S. pullout to continue to try and rescue more Afghans? Is that even an option? No. Let's be frank. Uh, coalitions in that part of the world are run by the United States of America. Canada contributes to them, uh, full stop. We are not in a position to conduct unilateral operations in that part of the world. Uh, let's finish on this. You touched on it earlier. Uh, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, the Liberal leader, said again today, Canada will not recognize a Taliban government. Uh, they are a recognized terrorist entity in this country. And yet um, there's going to have to be, uh, he wants to pressure the Taliban, presumably by negotiating with them to let more people leave to provide humanitarian aid down the road. Um, how do you see that working? Well, it's precisely as you said. I don't. I don't believe we're going to recognize the Taliban. I wouldn't certainly encourage that. But we do have to negotiate with them. And there are a number of nefarious nations around the world with which Canada has no choice but to negotiate, even if we don't recognize them. Yeah, I think it's that approach that will be taken. It's necessary if we're going to come to a resolution on moving these people out of the country. Otherwise, we'll have to continue to try and do it clandestine, clandest, uh, in a clandestine yeah. fashion. And that's extremely different, dif difficult uh, at this distance. Uh, and one would presume that uh, that would be a uh, would be a fairly urgent undertaking, wouldn't it? Uh, that's something that would have to start now. I'm not sure what you know diplomatic presence Canada has left there to try and make that happen. But uh, how do you think that can happen? Well, I, as I think you heard from Minister Garneau, the, the embassy withdrew. Mm. Um, other countries withdrew their embassies from their physical compounds, but they withdrew them into the airport so they continue, so they could continue to service uh, their citizens and the Afghans that supported their, uh, these other coalition partners. Uh, they will have to put somebody on the ground or work through a third party. So it's not unusual for Canada to use another country as the go-between to conduct these negotiations. Lots of Gulf states are still plugged in to uh, the Taliban and I would imagine that that's the route that they would take in order to communicate any messages that they want to communicate and conduct a uh, 
some right. some form of negotiation. All right, uh, retired Major General uh, in the Canadian Forces, Dennis Thompson. Uh, thank you for your perspective tonight, uh, sir. Good to talk to you. We'll talk again. Thank you. Housing affordability is a key issue in this campaign. We know the obstacles facing first-time home buyers squeezed out of the market by sky-high prices. There's a lack of supply and low-income families spend years on waiting lists for affordable housing. Here's how the main parties are promising to fix the housing crisis. Let's look at the platform offers, the key features of the Liberal Housing Plan, a new savings account to allow Canadians up to age 40 to save $40,000 toward their first home and withdraw it tax-free for a down payment, a promise to double the first-time home buyer's tax credit from $5,000 to $10,000, cutting mortgage insurance rates by 25%, a rent-to-own program, which includes $1 billion in new funding to help renters buy a home within five years, nearly $7 billion to build or repair 1.4 million homes and affordable homes, a tax credit for additions to a home for an elderly family member, and more money for uh, Indigenous housing. The key features of the Conservative housing platform, a pledge to build 1 million homes over three years, in part by converting 15% of federal buildings or land, barring foreign investors from buying a home in Canada for the next two years unless they are moving to Canada or living in the home, encourage the offering of uh, seven to 10 year mortgages uh, to ease the mortgage stress test and insurance requirements to help people qualify for financing. And the key features of the NDP housing plan, it's really focused a lot on renters. It promises to build 500,000 affordable homes over the next 10 years, a 20% foreign buyer's tax on home sales to individuals who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents, uh, the creation of 30-year mortgages insured by Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Well, my next two guests can help us review the party promises for housing and whether they will truly address the crisis in Canada. Jeff Morrison is the executive director of the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. And Ian Lee is a, an associate professor at Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. Good to see you both, gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Um, Mr. Morrison, let me start with you. When you look at the platforms of the major parties on housing, what do you see? First of all, I see a recognition by all the parties of the basic fact that we are in a housing crisis. Uh, I don't think we've seen this level of comprehensiveness in party platforms with respect to housing, and particularly affordable housing, in many years. So I think what you've seen in all the parties is really an attempt to try and deal with housing across the spectrum of housing, which is not something that we've seen for uh, a very long time, but it's absolutely a recognition that you know this is not an issue that's confined to any one part of the housing continuum, that it's really across the housing spectrum that we are literally facing a situation of a crisis. All right, Ian Lee, what about you? What do you see worth noting in the party platforms on housing that, that you think will actually address uh, the real challenges Canadians are facing? I, I think Jeff read my mind. Uh, that was exactly what I was going to say. Um, the, the, this is the first time that I can recall in any federal, any national election, where housing and affordable housing and the housing crisis has reached such a fever pitch, such that all the major parties have devoted uh, an important part of their platform to it. And just as a, 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 a second in support of that, uh, why I'm so pleased is that there is a, I think it's fair to say that there is a recognition that we have a serious supply problem, shortage of housing problem in this country, which there's been great debate on over the last two or three years. And I think we're now coming to a consensus 
that there is a serious okay. shortage. Uh, Mr. Morrison, let, Mr. Morrison, let me have you pick up pick up on that. Um, because a lot of when you look at the, the platform promises from the different parties, a lot of them deal with incentives to get more and more people into the market to, to make people buyers. And yet, uh, you know, what about this issue of supply? Do, does it say enough about uh, the supply issue versus the demand issue? Yeah, and I would completely agree with Ian. Uh, supply is so fundamental and particularly, you know, on the non-market affordable housing side of the equation. Uh, supply has been something that we have raised for years and years. It was meant to be a key component of the national housing strategy in 20, that was announced by uh, Mr. Trudeau in 2017. Uh, we're still in the fairly early days of that strategy. And of course, it takes time to, to build housing and get it in place. Um, but even once those measures from the 2017 strategy are fully implemented, you know, we are still going to place, uh, face excuse me, supply issues, particularly you know, for that for that affordability side. So, yeah, you've seen some different proposals by the parties. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been some similarities, some things that all the parties have committed to. For instance, developing an urban indigenous housing plan, which is so critical. Uh, but they've all kind of taken a bit of a different tack in terms of how to, uh, where to put right. the focus on increasing supply. Mr. Lee, one of those different tacks, I guess, is the, in the conservative proposal, this, uh, this idea of uh, making available uh, up to 15% of federal lands and buildings. Uh, I think the federal government has 37,000 uh, buildings across the country uh, and make that available to housing, 15% of that stock. Uh, what do you think of that idea? Um, well, there are parts of the conservative platform I can criticize on the demand side. In fact, all three parties, and I hope we come back to that because I don't think they're going down the right road there. On this side, I think this is critically important. Um, I have been very public in Ottawa. I've testified before city of uh, Ottawa uh, Economic Council on the uh, very deliberate barriers being put forward by municipal councils across Canada, especially Vancouver, GTA, and Ottawa, because of this alleged urban sprawl, which is the pejorative negative term for growth of the population. And so we need a lot more supply. And so it's under the control of the municipalities, for sure. We all understand that. They do the bylaws and that sort of thing. But the federal government, because it's the largest land holder in Canada, people may not realize that. They own land all across this country. And, and so to kickstart the process, to jumpstart, to push a land onto the marketplace is, I think, a very important step forward to make it available, presumably for sale to developers because they're the people that build homes. So I, I think this is the way to go to get around the um, the obstreperousness of the municipalities in our country. Okay, I'll come. I'll give you a chance to come back on the on the demand side as you uh, talked about a little bit uh, a while ago. But Mr. Morrison, uh, I you know, do any of these plans deal with the fundamental question that I, you know I think needs to be asked of whether we want housing prices to keep rising and whether that's a good thing? Do we continue to treat houses as assets and investments in our future and our retirement, or do we need to look at housing differently? What I hope parties will do is remember what Parliament. Uh, recognized in 2019 when they passed right to housing legislation. And by doing so, Parliament actually recognized housing for what, frankly, it should be, which is a human right, which is shelter, uh, which is a fundamental, you know, just a fundamental necessity. Um, you're right, there's been a lot of focus of housing as an asset, as an investment. There's been some real problems with that, especially uh, in this concept of financialization, 
whereby houses are bought up, uh, renovated, and then rented out at much higher rates. Mm -hmm. That creates a lot of problems. So I really hope people will see housing is what it is, which is a human right. Uh, Ian Lee, let me let me hear you on that, and also you can possibly weave in your concerns about uh, some of these platform promises that deal with the demand side, and your concerns about that. Right. If we're talking about uh, in, in sort of lockstep, this notion that uh, we, housing prices continue to rise, and for some people, that's a great thing. I'm not a big fan of that, by the way, of house pricing going up. Um, and I deeply believe in home ownership. I bought my first home when I was 25 years old. I could barely afford it. I was absolutely broke beyond all belief. And I desperately wanted it because it was it was my dream, like millions and millions of Canadians. It should not be considered a, a quote, a capital gain flip or an investment. It's good God. It's where you raise your family, your children. You eat there. You sleep there. You live there. It's your existential existence. And I'm saying this so strongly because there's now op-eds being written saying, well, you know, we're overestimating and overvaluing the importance of owning a home. It's the dream of millions and millions of Canadians, whether they're new Canadians or indigenous Canadians, to have your little home in the sun, your place in the sunshine. So there's nothing wrong with that. I do criticize all three parties for stimulating demand with the policies and their platforms. We have a housing crisis partly because houses are out of control, house prices are out of control because there's a shortage of supply. So we shouldn't be trying to throw gasoline on the fire of shortages by trying to drive even more people into the housing market to buy houses that aren't there, thereby driving the prices up yet further again, exacerbating the crisis even more. They should focus like a laser beam on the supply side. And then once we bring supply back into balance with demand, then they can talk about incentives for Canadians okay. to buy homes. Mr. Morrison, let me let me uh, turn to you again here and, and uh, let me talk to you a little bit more about uh, the affordable uh, housing piece here and, and whether the parties are saying enough about that. Uh, and, you know, whether you think something's missing here from their platforms. There's a number of different tacks that, as we talked about, that they're taking to increase that supply of, of affordable housing. And by the way, you know, I, I agree with Ian. And frankly, I just bought this house uh, in February in the middle of that, you know, really crazy housing market. Um, but the reality is for, you know, millions of Canadians, home ownership is just not going to be able to be a dream they'll realize simply because they don't have the incomes to do it. So we do need to focus on supply, but we also need to focus it on that non-market, uh, social, non-profit side of the equation, because then that way we can make home, uh, not ownership, but at least access to housing, uh, something that everyone can realize, including, by the way, the 235,000 Canadians who experience homelessness every year. And as part of this discussion, we can't forget them because they are still part of that housing spectrum uh, and something that we still need to address. Right. So I agree supply, but supply for everyone. Right. Uh, let's finish on this. Uh, Mr. Leader, to wrap up here, uh, do you think parties are on, I guess, proof's in the pudding. We'll see after the election who actually follows through with what. But uh, you, you, you believe the conversation is now heading in the right direction? I do, because as Jeff and I have been discussing, we're talking about it. We're actually talking about it, and people aren't buying. I agree with Jeff about the affordability side, and yes, we have to worry about homelessness, absolutely, and people that can't afford it. But I, I really believe, in, and this is something that no party will probably ever say, you build a million or two to two million new houses, 
onto the market across Canada. And I will predict, and I was a former mortgage manager many years ago, I will predict you will bring prices down by maybe 10 to 20%. Maybe people don't want to hear that message, but there's an imbalance okay. in supply and demand. Bring another 2 million houses out, and I think you will bring down house prices somewhat, making them somewhat more affordable. All right, gentlemen, thank you both for your uh, perspectives on uh, these housing platforms tonight. Uh, do appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this campaign edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. See you next time.